on Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Ismail Asafi. If you like what we're doing here at Untextbooked, go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcasting app. That way, you never miss an episode. What are we talking about on this week's episode, Ismail? We look at the complicated legacy of J. Edgar Hoover. He spearheaded homophobic, racist, and anti-communist policies, which arguably shaped half a century of the United States. That's definitely a name I remember from history class, but who is he? We're not talking about the president, are we? Well, U.S. history has two Hoovers from this time period. Herbert Hoover served as the president of the United States during the Great Depression. J. Edgar Hoover is our Hoover in question this week. He basically created the modern version of the FBI. The big fact of Hoover's life is that he was the director of the FBI for 48 years. So that's from 1924 to 1972, from Calvin Coolidge to Richard Nixon. And he's really the person who built the FBI with all of its strengths and and a lot of its weaknesses during his career. That's this week's expert, Professor Beverly Gage. She's a Yale historian and wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Hoover. Let me tell you, I devoured this book. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And one of the strangest things that the book presented was his homosexual relationship with a man while he was persecuting homosexuals during the Lavender Scare. Oh, spicy. Tell me more. This is one of the great questions of Hoover's life. So I don't go quite so far in the book as to say that he was absolutely gay for a couple of reasons. One, we actually just don't know that much about his actual sex life. And two, he himself would have really resisted that label. But the fact of the matter is that he never dated women and that the primary relationship of his life that was an intimate relationship, a social relationship, a very loving relationship, as well as a work relationship, was with a man named Clyde Tolson, who was his number two figure at the FBI. They traveled together, they went to family functions together, they had dinners and lunches, and and really lived their lives together as a social couple. So that's kind of remarkable for the period in which they lived, which was a period of pretty significant repression of gay people, and particularly in Washington, D.C., where beginning in the 1940s, it was actually federal policy that gay people could not be employed by the federal government. Oh, snap. I can't believe what I'm hearing. Totally. Historians call this period the Lavender Scare. Starting in the 1940s, U.S. leaders went in panic about LGBTQ people supposedly infiltrating the government. The U.S. military did not allow gay men to serve. A policy in 1947 banned LGBTQ individuals from working in the federal government. As the director of the FBI, didn't he have a role in rooting out LGBTQ workers from the government? Yes, he enthusiastically investigated his employees and colleagues for LGBTQ behaviors. So Hoover is this very complicated character who has these relationships 
one in particular that's both open and hidden. And then he is actually one of the people in the federal government who is most in charge of investigating the sex lives of other government employees, and in some cases, getting them fired from their jobs. All right. And that's absolutely fascinating for a character like Hoover to be able to manage, you know, being himself involved in a situation like that, while at the same time, you know, just pursuing people for the exact same thing. And I'm wondering, especially as somebody who's reading into him and who I'm guessing is living a pretty normal life, how do you refrain from over-psychoanalyzing this figure, right? Right. Well, another great challenge of writing biography, you know, and I'm not a psychologist, so partly I felt like I wasn't qualified to write a true psychobiography. You know, I tried to stick pretty closely to the historical evidence. But of course, there's some ways in which you have to go there. And I do think that, you know, Hoover grew up in an age and in a family where he had lots of anxieties about what it meant to be a man and how to kind of perform masculinity in public. He was a pretty tightly wound and anxious figure who was very attached both to uh, his control over the FBI and to presenting a certain public image in the world. One of my favorite moments in doing this research actually was coming across a little news article in around 1950, in which a reporter in Los Angeles was following Hoover and Clyde Tolson as they were on vacation together, and he followed them into a bookstore, and at that bookstore saw what they were buying, and Tolson was buying a couple of Westerns, but Hoover was buying these two works of psychoanalysis, (laughs) one of which was called Our Inner Conflicts, and it was all about, you know, when you appear to be one person to the world, but you know you are someone else inside, how does that shape your world and your psychology? So there are these moments when the evidence pushes me into those more psychological interpretations. As I was reading this book, I couldn't stop myself from entertaining all the possibilities of what could be running through his mind. To see how his worldview was shaped, let's look at how he grew up. He was born in 1895. Hoover grew up in Washington, D.C. He went to the D.C. public schools, and he grew up in D.C. at a period in which D.C. was actively segregating, so in which you know, much more rigid forms of racial segregation were coming into being. He went to college in D.C. as well. He went to GW, which at the time was mostly a kind of night school for future government servants, um, and that was what he was going to be. He lived at home went to night classes, worked at the Library of Congress during the day. But during that period, he joined a fraternity at GW called Kappa Alpha. And Kappa Alpha was an explicitly Southern fraternity that had been created in the aftermath of the Civil War to carry on the traditions of Robert E. Lee, to carry on the traditions of the White South. And by the time Hoover joined it, It was best known for some of its alums, like a guy named Thomas Dixon, who wrote the books upon which Birth of a Nation, uh, this famous movie of that era that glamorized the Ku Klux Klan, uh, was based. And so it was steeped in a kind of lost cause racism, romanticism about the Old South. Uh Uh-oh, that doesn't sound good. 
it was segregated. It was, you know, quite explicitly a believer in racial hierarchy. And so Hoover really got his education about a lot of his social worldview, particularly as concerned race in a place like Kappa Alpha. So imagine how the director of the most powerful intelligence bureau reacted when the civil rights movement erupted. Hoover was very much in office during the 50s and 60s. It was actually his prime years as director of the FBI. And the American landscape was far from calm. Since Brown v. Board in 1954, the possibility of a racially just society came to the forefront in many Black Americans' minds. So much that a number of political movements calling for the end of segregation emerged. Rosa Parks, MLK, the Black Panthers, that was all during Hoover's time. Hoover's FBI played a huge role in surveilling Black activists and citizens. We are not now part of America. The young know that very well. So if you want to come down Friday to hold up a sign against Humpty Dumpty, hold up your sign. You dig? I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Could you speak a little bit more about the relationship of the FBI and Hoover's FBI to the civil rights movement? Hoover had really a lifelong animosity toward the civil rights movement. Some of that was rooted in his racial ideology. Some of it was rooted in his perception that communism and civil rights activism went hand in hand. Some of it by the 60s was rooted in his hostility to certain forms of civil disobedience and social protest, which he saw as disruptive and forms of of law-breaking. But there's a pretty consistent line in Hoover's career of conducting surveillance of civil rights activists, Black activists, Black writers, and newspaper editors. That really comes to a peak in the 1960s when the FBI does very extensive surveillance and disruption campaigns against Martin Luther King, against the Black Panthers, against many of the major figures in the civil rights movement broadly defined. But there are also moments of exception in all of this too. You know, there are moments in Hoover's life when he engages in pretty extensive investigations and campaigns against lynching in the white South. He does pretty extensive investigations of white supremacist organizations and of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s. So, you know, even here, I think there's a, there's, there's a somewhat complicated story, or at least more complicated than, than a lot of people would think when they think about Hoover. Anti-communism is also a huge part of his legacy. But why was he so concerned about communists? Well, it's complicated. And to explain it properly would take a whole different podcast. But to simplify, communism was a new idea that U.S. leaders thought could upend the way things worked in the United States. Senator Joseph McCarthy would give fear-mongering speeches and investigate communists in public office. The fight to expose those who would destroy this nation. This was called the Red Scare. You can even hear these historical echoes in today's political rhetoric. So I'd, I'd have to be familiar with, with what the provision is of law. Obviously, communism bad, also evil, also True. killed 100 million people. So I'm, I'm bewildered by people who, who are, are romantic toward communism. 
One, one thing that all the communists who live in America have in common is that they live in America. <laughs> Move to Cuba and then tell me how wonderful communism is without being a part of the prevailing regime. You mentioned earlier Hoover's anti-communism. Could you speak a bit more about his relationship with the anti-communists of the 1950s and 60s? Because, you know, he shut down McCarthyism, but at the same time, he was himself a big anti-communist. That's absolutely right. And it's one of these kind of complexities, if not contradictions, in Hoover's life. Anti-communism was probably the most important cause of his life. He entered the Bureau or the Justice Department at any rate in 1917, the same year as the Bolshevik Revolution. He was one of the first figures in federal law enforcement to really think seriously about communists and communism. And he continued this theme really until the day that he died. He was famous as one of the country's most prominent anti-communists, but at the same time, he would look at a figure like Joe McCarthy and think, you know, McCarthy is actually hurting rather than helping the anti-communist cause. He thought that McCarthy was kind of a demagogue. He thought that McCarthy exaggerated and lied and was just a headline grabber. And Hoover preferred to work a little bit more quietly and a little bit more carefully. And I think actually was a little bit more wedded to the truth of the matter than McCarthy himself was, though in fundamental ways, I, I really disagree with J. Edgar Hoover. And to what extent do you think that Hoover's anti-communism shaped the FBI for years to come? It absolutely did in both the FBI's internal culture. That was referred to in certain periods as, and these were in capital letters, the cause, right? FBI agents just talked about serving the cause. And the cause was battling communism. So it was very central to the way that agents saw themselves, saw their mission, saw what they were doing in American government. And as a result, it became very important to the way that Hoover built the institution. And a lot of the forms of domestic surveillance and intelligence gathering that ultimately came to be used against other groups, figures like Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, they were all really created and tested on the communists in their earliest iterations. Hoover is also a fascinating figure in how he viewed the role of government. On one hand, he was a dedicated public servant who believed in the power of government. This is something associated with the progressives today. The question we ask today is not whether our government is too big or too small, but whether it works. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But on the other hand, he was deeply socially conservative. Hoover is an interesting character, particularly for our political universe, because he had two main strains that he believed in pretty deeply. One was uh, really a progressive belief in the value of career government service, right? So he was an appointed official. He never joined a political party. He never voted. Residents of D.C. couldn't vote at the time. And he really made his whole career around the idea of career government service, government professionalism, expertise, nonpartisanship, 
these people who worked for the government but stood outside of politics, something that we in our own day tend to associate much more with progressives or liberals, this vision of government service. And then on the other hand, as you say, he was really kind of a traditionalist conservative. He was deeply conservative when it came to questions of communism and religion and race and crime. A lot of these, he became a very famous public spokesman on behalf of kind of doing existential battle against communists, against criminals, against atheists, and such forces in the world. And the trick of his career is really that he combined these two things that we don't see combined very often in our own world, but Hoover put them together, this, this belief in building the state in career government service and this deep social conservatism. I also wanted to take a step back and ask Professor Gage about how she put this book together. And as somebody who's been writing history papers for years now, I know how hard it is to ally these contradictions in a cogent argument. And let me tell you, G-Men was so incredibly well-crafted that the narrative allows you to put all of the pieces of Hoover's life together. I knew that I wanted to write a biography that was not just the story of one man, but was the story of one man as a vehicle for getting at some of the biggest and most interesting themes in American life and American politics in the 20th century. And so Hoover was just a great vehicle for that. And to me, that's where some of the power of biography can reside, because it gives people a way, a very human way, to connect with these big abstract themes of the past. You know, biography has some challenges as a genre. One, some biographies just aren't that interesting (laughs) if the person themselves is not that interesting. Sometimes it can lead people to overstate the significance of their subject, make everything about their person in ways that aren't historically accurate. Right. And to what extent would you say that your work draws into the tradition of revisionist history? Because, you know, there's a big strain in contemporary U.S. historiography to just rewrite everything in certain ways, right? And use the monograph and draw on theory to make visible certain things that were not. How did you use the biography to do that in your book? Well, I think all history is revisionist history of some sort in the sense that the writing of history is always really a conversation, you know, between the present and the past. So all historians are engaged in revising ideas about history. And that's actually a really productive thing. That doesn't mean that you can make up things about the past, right? There's a certain basic factual truth in the study of history that one has to commit to and commit to in a serious way. But we're always asking new questions about the past, discovering new things that we didn't know. That said, in certain ways, I was writing, I would say, a kind of old-fashioned sort of history in the sense that it's a biography, you know, of an old white guy in a position of power. What I tried to do is take lots of insights from all of the most cutting-edge fields of history, you know, the history of race and civil rights, gay and lesbian history, gender history, social and cultural history, and really use those to inform and understand Hoover in new ways and in true ways. 
I don't have any problem with the label of revisionist history. All history is a conversation, a form of revision, and it would be really boring <laughs> if it weren't. Absolutely. And going back to the factual basis, for this book, you looked at archives that had not been open to the public before. What was it like digging through these super secret archives? Well, I'm a big archive nerd, so I love that stuff. And I found it really exciting to see pieces of history that hadn't been seen before. Some of those I managed to get by filing requests through the Freedom of Information Act, which for students is a really great tool to think about using. So to me, it's one of the most thrilling parts of doing history, um, is not only bringing new interpretations to the past, but actually really finding new stuff. Right. Hoover left a huge paper trail, right? And I'm just wondering, do you think Hoover knew that a future historian like yourself would be looking through all his files and that's why he left so many documents and he was like trying to justify himself? It's funny. He did leave a massive, massive paper trail. And it's far more than even I. I spent more than a decade working on this book, but even I didn't come close to looking at everything that was produced by the FBI or even Hoover himself over the course of that 50 years. And your question is really interesting. So sometimes it's clear that he was very self-conscious about leaving a paper trail and a paper trail that he thought would reflect well on him if anyone ever saw it. But at the same time, there was no Freedom of Information Act throughout most of his career. Uh, there weren't really congressional rights to access FBI materials. And so Hoover believed that most of what his FBI was producing would never, ever be seen by anyone outside of the FBI. He fought to keep those records secret quite successfully for most of his life. And so in that sense, they're also incredibly honest records because the people who were producing them didn't think that other people would see them. Interesting. So this guy's like deliberately leaving a paper trail? He'd think that he wanted people to know what his life was about and like somebody to write a book about him. I'm I'm very curious, like, how honest is this paper trail? I'm thinking that he's very deliberate about, hey, when I die, you can let this out, but not before then. You know what I'm saying? I think that's exactly what he was doing. Well, I do think Hoover's legacy is interesting to consider in the context of the politics of the FBI in this moment. You know, I didn't understand when I started writing this book that the FBI was going to be so central uh, to American politics by the time the book came out. But I think the Trump years have been really dramatic for the FBI. And some of that's quite different from what we would have seen in Hoover's years, right? When Hoover left office, he was sort of beloved by conservatives and hated by leftists and liberals. Today, we've got those politics in reverse, where it's the right that's calling to abolish the FBI, and it's often the, the Democratic Party and liberals in the Democratic Party who are defending the Bureau. But in other ways, I think we are still living with some of the dilemmas that Hoover faced and that he sometimes created, in which the FBI is supposed to be standing apart from politics but is constantly in the thick of politics as well. And that's kind of a dilemma at the heart of the Bureau's history. 
Thank you so much, Professor Gage. This was an absolutely enlightening conversation. Great. Well, it was lots of fun. And I hope you get out there and do your own history research, too. Absolutely. Thank you again to her author, Professor Beverly Gage. Her latest book is G-Man, Jadger Hoover, and the Making of the American Century. The book has won the Pulitzer Prize and a whole bunch of other awards. You gotta check this out. So, Ismael, what did you make of all of Hoover's contradictions and contributions to the FBI? Well, I think that there's something to be said about the legacy of institutions like the FBI. We tend to think of the government as only the public institutions like Congress, the Supreme Court, or even the president. But to undermine the power of intelligence in the making of the contemporary American landscape is, as G-Men shows, a grave mistake. And actually, the use of the word complicated in the book reminded me of Professor Emily Wilson's recent translation of The Odyssey. It's, it's been very controversial, and it's been very modernizing of the text. And one of the things that she says is that, like, Odysseus is essentially, like, instead of giving like, all the adjectives that the Greek gives him or that the old translations give him, she's like, Odysseus is a complicated man. Hmm. And it's basically like uh, talking about everyone as a complicated man because this is like basically thought of as the everyman. I feel in contemporary politics, we tend to think of individuals as essentialized versions of their parties, of the ideas that they believe in. But the reality is they're just like individuals who are dealing with things that are just so contradictory and so historically based. So we look at a figure like Hoover and he's just dealing with like his homosexuality at a time when it's not accepted, dealing with the legacy of racism in changing America. And you just think about these things and you come to understand essentially how people come to have some of their ideas. And you come to essentially bridge that polarized version of America that we tend to live in today, that ideology-laden vision of the political world. You know, everybody's an individual and very complicated, but we try to simplify and simplify and simplify in society. But what are we missing out on in that? And what are the the downsides of that is something that, that I often wonder. Absolutely. That's all for this episode of In Textbooked. I'm producer Ismail Asafi. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Follow on Textbooked wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. While you're in your podcasting app, why not leave us a review too? We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Learn more about the podcast at untextbook.com. You can sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources with every episode. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at untextbooked. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain, and Cece Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People. Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. Thank you.